This is a, um, I didn't know how I would feel today being my last message. And, and not, to, not to say anything that makes me sound arrogant or anything, but it's, you know, as we've read through the Gospels, it, and, and you see the ministry of Jesus Christ as it begins to wind down with his disciples. And so what he says to his disciples is a lot more direct. And it's still loving and gentle, and, and so certainly that's, you know, how I'll be talking this morning. But it is addressing very serious issues um, and things that he needs his disciples to hear and understand uh, because he won't have an opportunity to say those things again. And uh, so I'm going to share for a few moments. <laughs> okay, more than a few moments. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share for a bit, and uh, then uh, I have something I'd like to read to you, and then we'll take communion together. And so it's kind of like the Last Supper. Um, <laughs> it's Because the disciples, they still had Passover. They still did communion, you know, every year. But, but, you know, with Jesus, it was this last time. And so this is our last supper. So anyway, uh, okay. Um, So this morning, uh, the the title of the message uh, today is that they may be one. That they may be one. As we read the Bible and we come across... Lots of exciting and interesting characters. We get to read about them in their ups and downs of life. We watch them succeed and we watch them fail. Uh, We see them repent and we see them be restored. We see some wander away and never return to fellowship with God. Uh, We look at Moses, Elijah, Deborah, Ruth, Paul, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and we feel drawn to their stories because maybe we have something in common with them, and so we're drawn to their unique story. And we are tempted to emulate their lives. But the truth is that the people in this book were just as human as you and I are. We try to learn from their examples And avoid the pitfalls that they fell into. But they battled temptation. They battled the flesh just like we do. Our struggles were their struggles as well. And in the Bible, we know there is only one person, one example of a life lived perfectly. There is only one person that we will ever not go wrong if we do everything that he did and model our lives after him in every way. And of course, that person is Jesus. So when we read the Gospels, as we studied them for around two years, we look at the major themes of Jesus' life and teaching. He talked a lot about love. He said uh, the two greatest commands, love the Lord your God, And love your neighbor as yourself. So he talked a lot about love. He talked a lot about generosity. He talked about money and the dangers of money and greed. So that it does not become an idol in your life. He talked about how God's kingdom works. The kingdom of God is like. And he told stories about how to operate in the flow with God's kingdom. And advance his purposes. He talked about avoiding self-righteous attitudes and behaviors exhibited by the Pharisees. Yet one thing Jesus discussed quite a bit that we may overlook is the concept of unity among the believers. Unity is a huge theme in Scripture, but we can easily miss it. The reason we might not think about unity that much is because we might not be in an open argument against uh, a fellow Christian. We may not be in a disagreement with them. And so we can assume that we are in unity. But that's not necessarily the case. Just like peace is more than the absence of war, unity is more than just the absence of an argument. Unity requires specific action to achieve it and to maintain it. Unity among Christians is a huge part 
of being a good example to the world. How did Jesus say the world will know that we are his disciples? He said it would be by the love that we have for one another. Love is not something we possess, but it's something we act upon. I love my wife and kids, and so I demonstrate love to them by serving them, by showing them affection, by providing for their needs. When we love each other, we demonstrate it. If there's a disagreement between Angela and I, then we need to resolve it speedily for the sake of unity. We don't want the kids picking sides and determining, uh, declaring loyalty for one parent. Well, I think mom's right. Well, I think dad's right. You know, that's not healthy. When we don't want there to be division in our family, people would assume that if that's the case, then we are headed for divorce if we don't demonstrate love and unity. Unity is critical for the success of a marriage, for a business, and for a church. Now, you might wonder, is unity that important? We're all from different backgrounds. We're all from different parts of the country. Sometimes we may be from different countries. And some of us were raised in a single-parent home. Some were raised in a foster home. Some were, uh, some, of, some of us lean to the left. Some of us lean to the right. We're so diverse, and that's just within this church. How can we as believers achieve true unity and especially achieve it with churches on our street that disagree with our theology. Is unity that important to God, and should it be that important to us? Well, number one, if you have your bulletins, there's a fill-in-the-blank sheet that you can fill out. Number one, unity is displayed in God's own existence. Unity is displayed in God's own existence. The very first line in the very first book of the Bible introduces us to one God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This first line announces and declares an understanding of unity about God. The holiest verse in the entire Bible to those of the Jewish faith is called the Shema. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 6. It says, hear, which is the Hebrew word Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. The Lord is one. There is a unity about God, but there's something else. As we learn in the New Testament, this one God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three unique, distinct persons with three unique, distinct roles. This isn't really that shocking when you read passages like Genesis 1.26 when God said, let us go down and make man in our image after our likeness. Then after the flood, God said in Genesis 11, let us go down and confuse their language. God exists in three persons, but there's still absolute and complete unity. In John chapter 10, Jesus talked at length about being the good shepherd. And he said that his sheep hear his voice and recognize his voice and will follow him. Now, in our Wednesday night series that we've been covering, the, uh, the shepherd's psalm, we've been looking at Psalm 23, and what we discovered is that every shepherd has a distinct call for his sheep. So his flock can be linked together with other flocks of sheep, other shepherds. They can mingle their sheep together, and it won't cause them any alarm because every shepherd has a unique call. And when, he, when that shepherd calls his sheep, only his sheep go to him. My sheep hear my voice. That's what he says. Jesus uh, stunned his audience at the end of his teaching in John 10. He said in John 10, 27 through 30, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then he says something shocking. I and the Father are one. The very next verse in John 10 says that the Jews, Jewish leaders there grabbed stones to, to uh, stone Jesus for blasphemy because it was completely ridiculous to equate yourself to the Almighty. It was ridiculous to equate yourself to the Almighty unless it was true. Jesus declared and demonstrated that he was one with the Father. When he was baptized in the Jordan River, Jesus stood in the water, the Father spoke from heaven, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove. Father, Son, and Spirit, all together and in perfect unity. Unity is important to God because God displays it in his own existence. Now, you can say, well, understanding how God can be three in one is one thing because he's God. He can do anything he wants, but what about us? How can we see unity demonstrated? Well, I believe that God gave us the gift of marriage to do just that. Number two, unity is displayed in marriage. At least it should be. When God created Adam and Eve, he, created, he used one of Adam's ribs to permanently connect the couple together. When Adam woke up, he said that Eve was bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Genesis 1.24 tells us, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is off script, but here's a marriage tip for you. If you don't leave father and mother and cleave to your spouse, you'll always have problems with in-laws or your own parents. They'll give you lots of marriage advice, and some of it is really good marriage advice, but at some point you need to leave father and mother and cleave to your spouse. Your loyalty is now to your spouse. People will have all sorts of opinions, but you need to leave and cleave. That's a free marriage tip. The Gospels quote, the Gospels of Matthew and Mark have a quote, Jesus quoting this same verse as a reminder. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they become one flesh. How in the world can two people from completely different backgrounds and families come together as one? Honestly, sometimes it's as mysterious as the Trinity. Many times the person that you married is the complete opposite from you. They have strengths where you have weaknesses, and they have weaknesses where you have strengths, hopefully. My dad used to say, opposites attract, but opposites always annoy. Your spouse doesn't do things the way you do them, or even the way you want them to be done. From the way they cook certain foods, because that's the way they learn to do it. From the way they fold towels, to the way they load the dishwasher. There is a methodical, logical order to these things. We all have things we do a certain way because that's the way we learn to do them. I fold towels a certain way because that's the way my mother required me to fold towels in our house. My wife folds towels a different way because her mother folded them and taught her some obscure, <laughs> crazy way. Crazy, illogical. It makes no sense. When someone comes into our lives and they do things differently, we don't like it. Even if it's better, even if it's more logical, more efficient, it's different, and thus it is not good. And yet, there is 
and should be an incredible unity in the life of a married couple. I have found, at least in my own experiences, that God deals with Angela and me differently. But he always deals with us together. Because the two have become one. Meaning that when God was going to bring about a change in our lives, he handled it one way with me and one way with Angela. But he's not going to lead me down a path to accomplish something for my life that he will not let Angela in on. And that, that if I'm hearing from God and she's hearing from God, it's not two different messages. It's one message. Because the two have become one. If we are both in sync with him and with each other, then he has to deal with both of us. But he does it differently based on our personalities. The two have become one. If we are equally yoked, if we are connected to the yoke of Christ and we are headed in the same direction, he's going to ensure that we are walking in unity. Understanding the unity in marriage makes it a little easier to hopefully to understand unity with God. Two persons becoming one. With God, three persons are one. Number three, we see unity is displayed among the disciples. Now, because God is in unity and he created the family unit to function properly in unity, it makes perfect sense that he wanted his followers to walk in unity as well. That did not happen immediately. The disciples came from all different backgrounds. Two of the disciples that Jesus called to follow him were at the opposite ends of the most extreme backgrounds for any Jewish person. Matthew was a tax collector for Rome. He would have been hated by every Jewish person who knew what he did for a living. Because tax collectors had a certain amount they had to collect for Rome, and anything they collected above that was their own paycheck. Now, I don't know anybody who willingly lives in poverty. If it's up to them to get paid, they're going to get paid, and they're going to get paid well. And so tax collectors were hated because they were not only puppets for Rome, they were Jewish people being used by Rome to oppress other Jewish people, but they themselves oppressed Jewish people because they lived very, very well for themselves. The only poor tax collector was a terrible tax collector. And so you had Matthew, this tax collector, who was hated by every Jewish person in Israel. Then you had a disciple called Simon the Zealot. Now, that did not mean that Simon was zealous for God. A zealot was a political party. The zealots were a political party in Israel. And they hated Romans, and they hated everybody who worked for Romans. And they would kill anyone who worked for the Romans. So you can see that it was a little tense in the room when Matthew and Simon the zealot were there together. Because they were at opposite ends of the political spectrum. Simon the Zealot probably would have murdered Matthew and considered it a just cause had Jesus not been in the room. They didn't have anything in common except Jesus. And because they had Jesus in common, that was all they needed to have in common. Towards the end of Jesus' ministry, he prayed to the Father this beautiful prayer in John 17. John 17, verses 17 through 23, Jesus is praying. This is right before he goes to the cross, and this is what he says. To the Father about the disciples, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified or set apart for holy service in the truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. 
that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, loved them even as you have loved me. What an incredible prayer. Jesus said twice in that paragraph alone that our unity is critical for the world to believe in Jesus Christ. Our unity is critical for the world to believe in Jesus Christ. It could not be more explicit than that. If we are in unity and we display that unity, it is a gospel message to the world outside the walls of the church. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what kind of message are we sending to the world? Do we actively pursue unity in our church and with other churches? Sometimes I think Facebook can be the best thing in the world, but most days I think it's the worst thing in the world. I belong to a couple groups. I don't know why. But one of them I belong to because I really enjoy the TV show, The Chosen. It's a show about the life of Christ. It's an amazing, amazing thing you can watch for free, thechosentv.com. No, it's thechosen.tv or something like this. You can find it. Anyway, the point is I belong to a group that talks about the TV show, and they post updates on when the new episodes are coming out and all this stuff. And... I'm scrolling through my Facebook feed, and all of a sudden, you know, there's a post. Oh, oh, when is the next episode? No, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with these conversations back and forth. Because some people in the group are Roman Catholic, and some people in the group are anti-Roman Catholic. And so they get into it. And I'm like, ugh. And I just feel like the creators of the show are just like, we've created a monster here. Unfortunately, sometimes people uh, let the worst parts of themselves come out on social media because they're not saying something to somebody's face. And you have these arguments. And they're so dumb. They're so pointless, fruitless. When was the last time we ever convinced somebody of a different opinion over the Internet? I mean, it's so rare. It's so, so rare. We sometimes belittle, make fun of other churches or other Christians or other denominations because they behave differently. No church will ever accomplish God's will if it is walking in disunity. That is not to say that everybody has to agree on every issue and have the same opinion on everything. But I can disagree with my wife and still walk in unity with her because of love. There can be disagreements in church, but as long as love is the guiding principle, I can lovingly confront the sin in someone's life. I can lovingly address issues. And we can disagree and yet still be loving, and be in unity with one another. So the pastor's goal is to get all of us walking closer and closer to the model of Jesus Christ. If I choose to confront someone and I do not walk in love, then I'm wrong, even if they are wrong. You can do the right thing in the wrong way, and guess what? You're wrong. You can only be right when you do the right thing in the right way. A church must walk in love to walk in unity. Psalm 133, verse 1. It says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And I think we could safely say the opposite of that is true as well. How bad and miserable it is when people dwell in disunity, discord, and strife. It's terrible. It's uncomfortable for everybody. And I'll give you an illustration. Have you ever had a family member that constantly stirred up arguments at family gatherings? 
You dread going to family reunions or Thanksgiving meals or Christmas morning gatherings because you know that family member is going to be there and they're absolutely going to say something that starts a fight. You don't want to go because of how terrible and awkward it makes you feel every single time you leave. You're like, why do I keep doing that to myself? You definitely would not invite a friend to come over to Christmas uh, breakfast or lunch. Uh, You would not bring someone that you care about to a family reunion if you knew this was going to happen every single time. If you had to bring them, you'd give them noise-canceling headphones and tell them, just take them off when I tell you. Otherwise, just leave them on the whole time. And yet, churches and Christians are in open disunity with other churches and other Christians, picking fights, either in person or online, and then wondering why people won't come to church with us. Jesus told us why. Our unity is key to demonstrating that Christ did something in us when we got saved. That we should be walking in supernatural unity with one another. We should keep our conversations as loving and gracious and merciful and forgiving. And if nothing else, focus on the one thing we have in common, Jesus Christ. There have been times where I've been invited to speak at Baptist churches and Methodist churches. And you know what I didn't talk about? The things we disagree on. You know what I did talk about? The things we have in common. I talked about Jesus Christ. Because my doctrinal 16 fundamental truths on areas, any of the fundamental beliefs I have, are not going to persuade them to come over to my side of the fence if I'm not operating in love. When the disciples were unified, they had a life-changing experience. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house while they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, being a Pentecostal church, I'm sure you've heard that passage plenty of times. But what was the precursor to the advent of the Holy Spirit? What enabled this event to take place? Unity. They were all together, together. They were all in one place and of one mind. They were together physically, but more importantly, they were all together spiritually. For 10 days, they ate together, talked together, prayed together, and waited together. They didn't know their waiting would end on Pentecost. Jesus just said, stay in Jerusalem until the promise from the Father comes, the Comforter that I will send. That's all he said. They didn't know what it would look like. They didn't know what would happen. And they didn't know how long it would take. Maybe it took them 10 days. These 10 days in the upper room. Maybe it took all 10 days for them to finally get in unity. We don't know. But what we do know is what happened to them once they were in unity The Holy Spirit fell upon those 120 believers and flowed through them. And it changed the world. They stumbled out of that upper room. Some people walking by thought they were drunk at 9 a.m. And Peter stood up of sober mind and preached a sermon that takes about 90 seconds, if that, to preach. And 3,000 people accepted Christ that day. So this leads me to my final point, number four. Unity must be displayed among churches. Unity must be displayed among churches. If the church of Jesus Christ is to achieve his mission for us, we must be committed to unity. You can still hold your doctrinal beliefs and be in unity with Baptists and Methodists and Lutherans, etc., 
I'm not telling you to compromise on your theology and on your doctrine and what you believe Scripture teaches on how we should live and what we should believe. But many times we choose doctrine over people. And as I look in the Gospels, I do not see Jesus modeling that. Here's what I mean. When Jesus was confronted in the situation with the woman caught in the act of adultery, there is an established teaching in Scripture that anyone caught in the act of adultery, is they, they receive capital punishment. They receive the death penalty. And when Jesus was confronted about this situation, Jesus chose the person over the doctrine. When faced with Matthew and Zacchaeus, who were traitors to their own people, probably greedy cheats because they lived very, very well. They were very wealthy. And the doctrine of how Jews were supposed to handle money and taxes and uh, taking interest from people, Jesus chose the people over the doctrine. Now, it doesn't mean that he didn't believe God's word was true. Of course he did. He wrote it. He is God's word. It means that he chose to extend grace to that person so that they could learn the doctrine. I have a lot of friends that do not believe in the work of the Holy Spirit. They are cessationists. They believe that speaking in tongues and prophecy and miracles and all of that ended when the last apostle died. Yet I've been filled with the Spirit, with the evidence of speaking in tongues. I've witnessed miracles. I've, we've all heard the Holy Spirit speak to us through our church services. So when I'm around people that completely disagree with that doctrine, I don't stop believing that doctrine. I just choose to love that person and celebrate that we have both been transformed by a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I continue to model spirit-filled living in front of them so that in our unity and in my lifestyle, it will be a wonderful testimony of the truth of that doctrine and open them up to conversations about it because that has happened. I have friends uh, I, for instance, a friend of mine came to me. We had a lot of conversations. He was Southern Baptist. He was a Southern Baptist church planter. And we had a lot of conversations about the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and prophecy. And I explained not just the scriptures, but also my experiences. And I said, look, if there's something more that God has for you and you don't have it, wouldn't you want it? And if there's something that God gave his followers, his disciples, and empowered them for works of service, empowered them to be effective uh, uh, missionaries in their culture, wouldn't you want that as well? And so I said, just pray and say, Lord, if you want me to have it, I want to have it. One day his wife called me, and the only words that she said to me as I answered the phone were, you've ruined my husband. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, you've ruined my husband. He has forgotten that he is Southern Baptist. He's in our bedroom speaking in tongues. Now, I am eight hours away. I didn't lay hands on him. I didn't whisper in his ear a bunch of words to repeat. I said, Vicky, you should get in there with him and pray. Because whatever he's got, you should want it as well. And I talked with my friend, and he said, you know, I began to pray. And I said, Lord... If there's something more, if there's something more for me, I want it. I want to be empowered. I want to have the Spirit's power to speak into people's lives. I want to have your power to pray for people and for them to be healed. I want that. If it's possible, I want it. And he said, and if, if that need, means that I need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and, and that means I'm supposed to speak in tongues, well, then do it. And he said, and I'm going to stop speaking and I'm just going to wait for you. And I told him that as soon as the Lord begins to baptize, in the Holy, baptize you in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit begins to put words into your mind, words that do not make sense because they're not English. It's speaking in tongues. And by faith, you have to speak. But the second the, the, second the Holy Spirit begins to do that work in your life and enable you and, and uh, empower you to speak in tongues, the enemy will say, don't do it because you're making that up. And if you do it, you're committing blasphemy to the Holy Spirit because he does not want you to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. He will do anything he can to prevent you from being a Pentecostal. 
And I said, so just prepare yourself. This is going, this is probably how it will happen. The Holy Spirit will empower you and provide you uh, and do you with this power. And the enemy will come in immediately and try to prevent you from receiving it. And so he began to pray. And boom, the Holy Spirit uh, filled him and he began to speak in tongues. And he went. And he said, Lord, if this is not from you, I don't want it. He said, I know I'm not making it up. Because I'm Baptist. But he said, Lord, if this is not from you, make me mute like Zechariah, uh, John the Baptist's dad. You have to read the story. Um, and he said, so God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my hand away. <laughs> like, whatever. He said, I'm going to take my hand away. And if it's from you, I want to I wanna keep speaking in tongues. And if it's not from you, I want to be mute. Don't let me. Don't let me commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And he pulled his hand away and he began to speak in tongues even louder, which is what uh, predicated the phone call, the angry phone call from his wife. I loved him. And I talked to him about a doctrine that I had experienced and I cared deeply about. But that doctrine was not more important than being in unity with my friend. I believe that if I model unity and I model love, that God will open up the opportunity for us to lovingly discuss things that we disagree with. And that's okay because we can still walk in unity. We get so committed to causes these days that we leave wounded and confused people in our wake. Churches have split over the color of the hymnals. They, they have, over the color of the carpet, over what to name the church, who the pastor is going to be, where the church is going to be located, and many ridiculous issues. These divisions do not exalt Christ. If anything, they demonstrate to the community that we are just as divided and petty as they are. I learned a valuable lesson one day, and I try to remember it. An argument to be won is not more important, is never more important than a person to be loved. An argument to be won is never more important than a person to be loved. I once pastored a church in a community that had a church with two other churches that had split off of it. Three churches. There used to be just one. And there was a funeral in town of someone that all the pastors knew. And so these three pastors attended but would not even speak to each other. They each knew the person that had deceased. And so they each wanted to speak at the funeral. But they would not allow the other pastors to introduce them. They needed someone in between them to introduce them. There was such disunity and discord among them. And I can't help but be brokenhearted over this because I feel like it breaks God's heart to see his churches and his children so divided. Two incredibly important statements by Jesus on this issue. Number one, the world will know you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. The love you have not for God, but for one another. The second statement, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. And we have prayed and we believe that God is sending this church the pastor that it needs for the future of Friendship's ministry. And when that pastor is chosen... Every single one of you needs to find a place of service and support this pastor. Support their family. Love them as you have loved us. Pray for them daily. Give sacrificially to the mission of this church and let them lead. If an animal has two heads, it's a monster. Likewise, a church cannot go in two different directions. Hear the heart, hear the vision that your next pastor shares, 
and pray about what part you play in it and let it become your vision. The only way it will succeed is if you get behind it and work towards accomplishing all that God has for this church. Don't let God's vision and mission for this church fail through your inaction and your disunity. Be one. Be of one mind. Be of one heart. Be of one voice. As Jesus said, become perfectly one so that the world may know that the Father sent him. We are living testimonies to the existence of Jesus Christ by the love we have for one another and the unity that we have with one another. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus about this critical issue of unity. And this was a group of Gentile Christians. They were not steeped in Judaism. Before accepting Christ, they worshipped pagan idols. And these pagan idols, they didn't want to have a personal relationship with them. They, didn't ha- they had no desire for mankind to draw near to them or to be known intimately by them because they were worthless idols. They don't speak, they don't move, they don't do anything. But now Christianity has become a huge culture shift for them in terms of understanding that there's a God that wants them, that wanted a relationship with them. And so Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, but now in Christ Jesus, you who, were, who, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God and in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see, before we accepted Christ, there was hostility and division between us, or between them, the Ephesians, and God's people. But now that they are in Christ, they have been brought near. This same God that brought them near to himself breaks down the divisions between us because he is our peace. We are reconciled to God and we're also reconciled to others. Paul wrote that we have the means, the message, and the ministry of reconciliation. He brought us near so that we could bring others near to God as well. So as Jesus prepared for the cross, he gave his most important words to the disciples in John 17. I want you to listen to his choice of words here. John 17 and verse 11, he said that they may be one, even as we are one. In verse 21, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one. And in verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Is there any doubt as to the importance of unity among believers. Does this leave any question in your mind as to what Jesus thought was absolutely critical for the success of the mission of the church? Can we be divided and still be a successful church? Absolutely not. So what is God's will for this church? That you may be one demonstrating the unity of God himself to the world. Be reconciled to one another. Stand together in unity and let love fill your hearts and your mouths as you speak to one another and about one another. I'll ask our worship team to come up. I encourage you. Francis Chan just came out with a book recently called Until Unity, and I encourage you to read that book audiobook, whatever, you can check it out. But it is fantastic, and it's on this issue. This is a very, very critical issue for the life of the church.
I want to read something to you, and then uh, as I'm reading, our ushers can go ahead and, and prepare, but hold off and don't begin serving just yet. To the board of deacons of Friendship Church and to the church members. I feel like the Apostle Paul writing his last will and testament. <clears throat> For over five years, this church has been our church home, our family, and an assembly of friends. This church has been a source of encouragement and blessing to us personally and professionally. I have seen miracles happen here. Lives transformed, the Holy Spirit move, and our community impacted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have been repeatedly amazed and inspired by your audacious generosity. You have been generous in your support of the church. You have generously supported benevolence needs, ensuring the hungry go fed. The homeless have a roof over their heads. The widows are cared for. The orphans are loved and the needy have an advocate. You open your hearts and your wallets because you cared about something that God cares about. Together, we accomplished much in the lives of families around our community through our outreach and service projects. You gave sacrificially to missions, accepting as your own personal mission to support and bless each South Texas district missionary. Your support and prayers not only encouraged them, but did so much more. There will be people from over 40 countries, 29 college campuses, three teen challenge campuses, two inner city ministries, and two anti-human trafficking ministries that will rise up and bless you for your investment into their salvation and their discipleship. They are part of God's kingdom because you heard the call. You let your heart be moved with compassion to the need and you gave sacrificially so that they might hear the gospel. This is no overstatement to say that generations will be impacted because of your faithfulness to the Great Commission. You did this, not me. You have given me space to pray and to preach as I felt the Lord direct me. My goal was to experience the living God in such a way that it changed me. It changed my worldview. It changed my heart and it changed my mission. Like Jacob, I wanted to wrestle with God and walk away limping. I thank you for letting me explore various topics and issues in the Christian faith as I sought to draw closer to Christ and be molded more and more into his image. You have not only loved me and respected me as your pastor, but you've loved my wife and my children. You prayed for them and you prayed with them. You believed God with us for the newest additions of our family. You've taught my children in your classes. You've invested God's word in their lives. You love them as if they were your own family. And that has blessed the heart of this husband and father. It has been the highest honor thus far in my life to pastor this church. You entrusted the pulpit to me. You gave me the honor of dedicating your babies, of baptizing you and your children, and of joining some of you in marriage. You leaned on me when you were struggling. You came to me for prayer and counsel, and you entrusted me with the things that are close to your heart. You allowed me to visit you and pray for you in the hospital, to join my faith with yours, to believe God for miracles, and to grieve with you when you lost a loved one. Your loved ones became our loved ones. Your griefs became our griefs, and your joys became our joys. If you looked for perfection in me, you looked in vain. But with the help of the Holy Spirit, I've always tried to be a faithful, authentic, transparent, and godly pastor for you and for your families. I have gone to God for you 
I have prayed for your families, for your marriages, for your children and your grandchildren. Though this church has a wonderful heritage, I am incredibly proud that you selected me to be your pastor for the past three years, and I prayerfully believe that the greatest days for Friendship Church do not lie in the rearview mirror, but they are still yet ahead. When I accepted this pastorate, I had no intention of going anywhere else. I had no intention of ever leaving for a larger church or a position that gave me greater visibility or recognition. Those things are not important to me. I have always wanted to simply live in God's perfect will at all times. I wholeheartedly meant what I said when I first announced that we felt that God was leading us into home missions work through the army chaplaincy. When I announced this imminent transition, I said to you, every life we touch, every suicide prevented, every marriage restored, every family healed, and every broken heart mended in this next step of ministry will have your fingerprints all over it because of your investment in us. For that, we are grateful to have found such a beautiful and loving church family to be a part of. Thank you for loving me, loving my wife, loving my children, and blessing us in so many ways. In the coming weeks, God will lead you to the right candidate to become your next pastor. Love them as you have loved us and follow them. When they pray and God gives them fresh vision, be ready to step forward and flesh that out so that this community will continue to hear the gospel and see it demonstrated every single day through your lives. God's best for Friendship Church is yet to come. I hereby tender my resignation as your senior pastor, effective at the end of day on Saturday, May 8th, 2021. Respectfully submitted, Jason Frazier, senior pastor, chaplain, captain, United States Army. On behalf of the Board of Friendship Church, I want to thank you for your leadership and your faithfulness to the Board and the Church. All of us on the Board have enjoyed serving with you and appreciate the sacrifices of time and effort that you have, have invested in leading our church. We want you to know that as you leave us to enter the chaplaincy, that our prayers, love, and support go with you. And we would like to present you with this compass. And it symbolizes you're faithfully following the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and in doing so that you will never lose your way. And we just want to thank you. I appreciate you guys. Thank you so much.